Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Church, it's good to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind taking it and open it to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, where we're looking together this morning in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We are in verses 9 to 15, looking here at what is a very familiar passage, the Lord's Prayer. So we're in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 15. Let me pray now as we come to this passage on prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray asking, Lord, that your name would be magnified. We pray, God, that you would do your work through the preaching of your word for the glory of your name and for the good of your church. I pray, Father, asking that you would help me in my weakness. I pray for your people in their weakness, that they would be able to hear and listen with spiritually attuned ears, and that by this, Lord, you would teach us how it is you want us to pray. For the glory of your name, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the doing of your will. All this we pray for the glory of Christ. Amen. I remember the first day that I moved into my new dorm room there on the seminary campus. Lauren and I, we had just met the summer before. We were dating at the time, and she was helping me move into my new room that day. And as I was Getting settled in there, having just met my roommate for that particular semester, as I was getting settled in, unpacking my things, all of a sudden, a sound that started in low and started to grow began to tear through the dorm room that sounded as though it was about to come barreling through the walls. And it was this incredibly loud, incredibly noisy, incredibly terrifying sound that just began ripping through the dorm room. And I remember asking, what, what is that? And my roommate, who didn't seem bothered or surprised by it at all, who had lived there for a little while, he responded, well, that's just the train. That's the train. I guess I didn't really notice, you know, that it was there. I didn't really notice it anymore. I'd gotten so used to it. And little did I know that, you know, sat 50 yards away probably from the dorm room was this train that would come barreling down the tracks, blasting its horn day and night. 
And I mean day and night. I remember there would be times where it was so loud, I would be on the phone in my dorm room that I couldn't even hear the person on the other end of the line. And I remember thinking that first night, how in the world am I ever going to be able to sleep in this room? And it was rough the first few nights, but guess what? Sure enough, little by little, night after night, I became used to the sound of that train. In fact, it became so familiar to me to the point where I didn't really even notice it anymore. Like my roommate. Didn't really notice the sound at all. I had become so accustomed to it. And you could say the same is true with the Lord's Prayer. The same is true with the Lord's Prayer. One author writes, the Lord's Prayer might be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. The single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Yet it is an untapped resource, partially because it is so very familiar. In other words, we become so familiar, church, with the Lord's Prayer that we don't even hear it anymore. It's, we don't even hear it. It's sort of like that train. We, we've heard it so many times for so long that we forget it's even there. Or we've heard it so regularly that we don't even know what it's saying, what we're asking for. And yet, Jesus here says to us, he says to his disciples here, I have given you everything you need in order to come face to face with the Father and King of the universe, coming to Him with your requests, your needs, with all the riches of heaven at your disposal, and it's all for you right here in this prayer. That's amazing. And so, at the risk of being too familiar with the Lord's Prayer, we're slowing down here in our trek through this portion of Jesus' sermon, and we're taking a deeper look at the, the petitions, this prayer, and so that we might be able to better grasp what it is Jesus is giving us here and how he's teaching us to pray. And I hope that after last week's sermon, after last week's message, you feel some relief in your prayer life. You feel relieved. I told you oftentimes, many people, they have this unnecessary guilt about prayer because of some misconceptions, I think, oftentimes, about prayer. When Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. This is how you should pray. This is what you should pray for. This is what you should pray about. This is what should guide and shape and dominate your prayers each and every day. And these requests, six of them here, are so simple. They're simple. I hope you're relieved by the simplicity of prayer. They're so simple, and yet they're so deeply profound, and as we'll see, so life-transforming as well. So last week, we looked at the invocation there in verse 9, who it is we're praying to, our Father in heaven. This week, though, we're going to look now, a longer look at these six petitions. But I want you to be encouraged. 
Jesus is pulling us aside here and teaching you how to pray. Look what he says. Matthew chapter 6. If you have your place there, would you stand? Out of honor for the reading of God's word, and I'll begin reading in verse 9. The apostle Matthew is writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit, the very words of Christ himself. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. So here's where we are. Verses 9 to 15, as we just read, Jesus is taking here a brief aside while he's teaching them on this subject of prayer. He takes this brief aside in order to show his disciples how they should pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's probably, though, better described as the disciples' prayer because these aren't the petitions that Jesus himself would pray. Jesus didn't need to pray, forgive us our debts, because he had no debts to be forgiven. So he's teaching, he's instructing, he's modeling for his disciples, for you and I, how we should pray. And it's actually very kind of the Lord to teach us how to pray. Because for some of us, we often wonder, well, what should I pray for? I don't, what, what are the things that I should pray for? I oftentimes feel so overwhelmed by the amount of things I should pray for. What are the things that I should pray for? Or maybe this is you. I, I spend about three minutes in prayer, which seems like an eternity to me, you might say, before I run out of things to pray about. And we pray the same old things about the same old things every time we pray. And then we wonder why prayer seems so hard, or so burdensome, or so boring. And when prayer becomes boring, then you're not going to feel like praying. And when you don't feel like praying, you're not going to be very motivated to pray, are you? And it's just this vicious cycle. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there. Verse 9, pray then like this. So if you, disciples, listen, if you will just pray this, if you'll just pray these things, take these requests here, this model, then you can be assured that you're praying for everything God wants you to pray for. It's all found right here. And... If you use this prayer as your model for praying, not only will you be praying for everything that God wants you to pray, but you may actually find that it may reawaken and reinvigorate your prayer life, following this model here. 
Now, last week I mentioned to you the structure of this prayer. What is the structure? Well, notice with me that after giving us these two ways not to pray in verses 5 to 8, of not praying like the hypocrites do in order to be seen by other people, or not praying like the pagans do, right? Heaping up empty phrases, thinking they're going to be heard by their many words. If that's how we shouldn't pray, Jesus turns now and he gives us six petitions, six requests that we should pray. Look at verse 9. We saw it last time, this, the invocation, or the one whom we're addressing, who it is we're praying to in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. So He is our Father. God is our Father. We've been adopted into His family through, by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. And what he's done for us, we've been welcomed in to the family of God by his grace because Christ has died for our sins and now he's our father and you're his child and you can address him as our father. He's our father and he is in heaven. He is the sovereign, holy God of the universe. And so Those two halves, our Father in heaven, combine perfectly his fatherly care and affection and his heavenly rule and authority. So he's the one who's tenderly hearing your requests as your father, and he's the one who actually has the power to act. So beloved, that's who you're praying to, our Father in heaven. Now, I didn't say this last time, but let me stress it now. That if God is your Father, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, and you now have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, indwelling you, then prayer should be the natural response, the heart inclination, the new inclination of your heart toward your Heavenly Father. The supernatural heartbeat now that the Spirit creates in every single Christian is to prompt you and to cause you to cry out to God as Abba, Father. Go read Romans 8. Go read Galatians chapter 4. And so when someone is born again as a child of God, they will have a new heavenward orientation of their hearts, of their lives, to pray to their Father. You will really want to pray to your Father. If you don't, something's wrong. So after the invocation, he turns to give these six petitions, which are divided, notice the structure, into two sections. Section one, the first three requests, verses nine and ten, notice they're all God-centered requests. His name, His kingdom, His will. And then the second section, the last three requests, 11 to 13, address our daily personal needs, our daily bread, daily need for the forgiveness of sin, daily need for the protection from sin. So what I want to do is I want to I look at section one with you this morning. We're going to look at those first three requests there in verses 9 and 10. 
Because they're all three overlapping. They're all three interrelated. And then next week we'll look at section two, those final three requests and that conclusion there you'll see in verses 11 to 15. So that's where we're going over the next two weeks. But before we do that this morning, I want to just point out two really obvious things. Two really obvious things that I think are worth mentioning. They're so obvious, and yet they're very important. Two, two important things. Here's the first obvious thing. Number one, notice how these are all petitions. These are all requests. All six of them are requests. These are all things that we are asking God himself to do. Now, why do I point that out? Thank you, Captain Obvious. Here's why I point it out. Because, well, first of all, you may have never thought about hallowed be your name as something you're asking God to do. But secondly, because if these are things that we must ask God to do, if these are things in which we must ask Him to act, then these are all things, what? That we cannot accomplish ourselves. That we do not have the strength or the power to do ourselves. So we can't cause God's name to be hallowed in our hearts. Only God can do that. We can't cause God's kingdom to come. We can't even, despite what we may think here in the affluent West, provide for our daily needs. We can't protect ourselves from sin and temptation. We're not as strong as we think we are. Only God can do this. And so we must call on Him to act and to do what only He can do and to accomplish what only He can accomplish. That's important to recognize. Here's the second obvious thing, I think. The structure of these six requests here implies a certain level of priority. The structure of these requests implies a certain level of priority. The first three focused on God. Notice His name, His glory, His kingdom. The final three focused on me, although not totally focused on me. I'll say that next week. But my personal daily needs. So... It communicates something just, just in the order, if you just look there on the page, it communicates what it is that should dominate my prayers. So I wonder, for you, do these three things here at the top of the list dominate your prayers? If we were to take time this morning and go around the room and take prayer requests from everybody here in this room and... Maybe if you, you like charts, maybe we had a pie chart, okay? We had a pie chart. I bet, here's, I'm just speculating, the majority of those requests, let's just say 80%, all right? The biggest piece of the pie would be about health concerns, job concerns, school concerns, family concerns. And listen, all of those things matter. I'm not in any way saying you shouldn't pray for those things. Your father cares about all of those things. He wants you to cast all of your cares upon him. So the last thing I want to communicate is God is unconcerned with those things. But here's, here, here's something to think about. However, that's not all 
he wants you to pray for. And dare I say, that's not even the first things he wants you to pray for either. Because you look at these first three petitions, look there, verses 9 and 10. They're all focused on the glory of God. God, I want to see your name hallowed. I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see your will be done. These are big, God-sized, God-centered, gospel-focused, gospel-rich prayers. That's the priority. So let me ask you, if that's the priority, is that your priority when you pray? Because if not, then why not? Could it be that you're more focused on your kingdom and your agenda than you're focused on the Father's kingdom and the Father's agenda? So those are the two sorts of obvious things, I think, about these. All right, let's get to them. First, petition number one. God's, here's what we're going to call it, God's glory. God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Verse 9. Now again, notice, this is the top of the list. This is numero uno. Number one, Jesus places a very high premium on the importance of his disciples praying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it isn't an assertion, right? Like you're you're just recognizing God, you're holy. It's not an assertion. It's a request. It's a petition. You're asking God. What are you asking Him for? You're asking Him to hallow His name. And so, beloved, do some self-assessment. I wonder how many of us walk through this life where the dominant reality of our lives each and every day, where the deepest longing of our hearts is that God's name would be hallowed. I want it to be seen, Lord. I want it to be known as holy. Now again, I know I keep saying the same thing, but it's, it may be the most important thing I say today. That right before Jesus teaches us here how to pray, he says something extremely insightful about our greatest need. Look there back in verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need. And so then the Lord's Prayer is built on this premise. My father knows what he, I need. And then what does Jesus say is the first thing I need? To hallow his name. So it would appear God diagnoses my needs differently than I diagnose my needs. Amen? What God says I need and what I think I need are different. What are my needs? Well, my physical needs, I need daily bread. My spiritual needs, I need my sins forgiven. I need, I need protection from the temptation of sin. But look, Jesus knocks all those things down the list. 
And what God says, the greatest need of my life is, is that I would have a heart that is oriented toward Him. I would have a heart that is that hallows his name. I would have a heart that is fully consecrated to God. That's what I need. And that's what you need. Verse 8, your father knows what you need. Verse 9, so tell him you need a heart that hallows his name. So before food, before forgiveness, before protection from sin, our greatest need is a deep reverence for God a hallowing of his name in my heart. Now, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because I haven't defined my terms yet. So, what do I mean when I say, hallowed be your name? Well, look there, verse 9. That word hallowed there, it, it literally just means to sanctify. To sanctify. Hallowed, you know, it's an old English word. And it's kind of just been carried over into our modern translations from like the King James, I think because it's just the way people have memorized it, so we're just going to carry it over now, right, into our modern, no one uses the word hallowed anymore, do you, right? No, it's an old English word, it's kind of like blessed, I mean, who says blessed? It's blessed, right? Hallowed, what does it mean? Well, it means to sanctify, or it means to acknowledge as holy. So when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name, we aren't saying, Father, make your name holy. No. We're not asking because we can't cause any change in God's character. God is holy whether you pray it or not. So then what are we praying? We're asking that his name would be recognized as holy. That his name would be regarded as holy. We're asking that his name would be treated as holy or honored as holy or revered as holy. The Christian Standard Bible, used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, translates verse 9, your name be honored as holy. That's a good translation. That's what it means. Your name be honored as holy. So we're asking God... To act in such a way that his name, his very character, his very nature, who he is, would be set apart. It would be hallowed in our lives and in our hearts. So that he would be seen as infinitely glorious, infinitely great, infinitely beautiful, infinitely holy. Holy, holy, holy. What might be some synonyms of hallowed? That God's name would be reverenced. That God's name would be feared. The good, healthy kind of fear. That, that we would stand in awe of Him. So in other words, we're asking God to do what? We're asking God to change our hearts. That God would cause His name to be honored in our hearts, in our world, in such a way that he is revered, he is feared, he is glorified. So listen, if I only communicate one thing under this first point, here it is. Jesus believes that my 
biggest need, the top priority, the number one thing in my life, and your biggest need in your life, what you and I need more than anything else is hearts that treat his name as holy. That's our greatest need. Now, there's two questions that come to mind, my mind. Number one, why do we need to pray that prayer? Why do we need to ask God to hallow his name? And number two, how should we pray it? What does that look like? Question one, why, why do we need to pray this prayer at all? Why must we ask God to hallow his name? And here's the simple answer. Because it isn't. It isn't hallowed. His name isn't hallowed. The natural man doesn't hallow the name of God. No one comes into this world oriented toward God. You know, young parents, you may say, well, my child, you know, they just have this natural disposition toward God. No, they don't. No one, nobody is naturally inclined toward a reverence for God at all. Each of us is born, the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, that doesn't mean we're no, we can't breathe. It doesn't mean we don't think or we can't reason. Here's what it means. It means your heart is unmoved by the glory of God. Unmoved. It's like a, it's like a dead rock. You are unmoved. You can look around the world, as you read in Psalm 19, and see the glory of God, and you think, ah. As the great Bob Dylan said, stone cold dead as you stepped out of the womb. Unmoved. A few examples of this from the Bible of the human problem. You want to know what the human problem is? I mean, everybody admits today there's a problem in the world. You want to know what it is? It's the human heart. Why do we need to pray this? Here's why. Because all of mankind is born into this world Blind and dead to the glory of God, and we do not hallow his name. A couple of examples. Romans chapter 1. Look up here on the screen. Romans 1. We read it a few weeks ago. You know this verse as well. For his invisible attributes, that's God, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You can see the glory of God as you look at creation. So that men are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the global problem. This is what's wrong with the world. God has revealed Himself to us, and we don't care. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with your children, that's what's wrong with you and me from the womb. Or look at this, Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Friend, that is all of us. 
No one is righteous. No one seeks for God. And then look at verse 18, Romans 3, 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The human heart has no regard for God. That's the problem. So what we're asking then in this first petition is, God, do what only you can do. Because the human heart, if left to itself, cannot and will not hallow the name of God. Which leads to the second petition. The second question, excuse me, second question. So in the first petition, how should we pray this prayer? If we're praying for God to change hearts so that he would be revered and honored, his name would be, then, then whose hearts are we praying for? Well, I think these requests have both a personal element to them, a narrow focus, as well as a more worldwide dimension or broad focus as well. They have a, a personal dimension to them. This is a daily prayer you should pray for yourself. Narrowly, it means asking, Father, grant that I would revere and obey and glorify you. That I would consider you as holy. That I would acknowledge you in all things. That I would regard you above everything else in my life. God, help me, help me, I pray, to be more God-centered in my life today. To hallow your name. That's what you're asking for yourself daily. Second, though, there's a worldwide dimension in that what we should pray for our families, what we should pray for our church, what we should pray for our culture, what we should pray for the world. So we pray that more and more people, men and women, boys and girls everywhere, would hallow your name. Father, may they treat your name as holy. Holy, holy. One of the things I'm coming to realize as a parent is I feel utterly helpless. <laughs> You're just now realizing that? Yeah, I'm beginning to realize it. I'm utterly helpless in changing the hearts of my children. That it isn't about merely greater obedience to my rules. Nor is it about, you know, here's what my kids need. It's not even more ethical instruction. You know what they need? A heart that hallows the name of God. One of the burdens, this is one of the burdens of pastoral ministry as well. Not only do I have my own heart to deal with, but you can look out at a congregation and you see people who are straying in sin Relationships that are fractured, marriages that are crumbling, children that are rebellious. Some who just seem to have no awe of God in their lives. And you know what they need the most? It isn't a mere behavior change. They need a soul that's captivated by the glory of God. Because when that happens... Everything else is going to follow. 
R.C. Sproul, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, he says it this, notice this quote, quote, a proper attitude toward God's name is the basis of everything. Because how we live before God is determined by our attitude toward him and our view of who he is. Notice what he says there. It is the basis of everything in your life. Your attitude toward God, how you view God, that's the basis for everything in your life. He says to regard him as holy should define everything in your life. Your home, your marriage, battle with sin, everything. And that's where Jesus begins. That's the first priority. That's the greatest need. That's the most important thing you could pray for. The highest goal in prayer is for the glory of God's name to be hallowed in your heart and in the world. So are you praying that? Is that what dominates your prayers? Is that prayer on your lips every day? Now, I've spent, I recognize it, most of my time on the first petition. I've got two more. That's okay. I'm going to pick up the pace because the first one is really foundational. It's very central to all of this prayer, really. Here's the second petition. Petition number two. We've seen God's glory. Here's what we're going to call this one. God's reign. God's reign. Not R-A-I-N. R-E-I-G-N. His kingly rule. God's reign. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. So the second petition, notice, is built on the first petition by showing us how God's name is hallowed. It's hallowed as his kingdom comes. So what does that mean? Now, those three words there, just notice with me, your kingdom come are loaded with important biblical theology. In fact, you could say the whole Bible is crammed into those three words. Your kingdom come. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about the coming of God's kingdom. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's what the New Testament is about. That's what Genesis to Revelation, it's all about. It's all about the coming of the kingdom. So what does that mean? What does it mean to pray God's kingdom to come. Well, think about it just with me for a moment in terms of the whole storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, the garden, God places a man and a woman, right, there to, under his good divine kingship, rule and reign over the earth. They're to both exercise dominion and they're both to be fruitful and multiply, right, subduing the earth. That's where he's placed them, under God's rule. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, the serpent, at the fall, man and woman, the devil, they sin. He, he usurps God's rule and authority. Did God really say? And what happens? Well, not only is mankind plunged into sin and death and judgment, but all of humanity at that moment comes under the rule and the reign of what Paul calls the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4. Gala uh, 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 the devil himself. So then we're under the tyranny of Satan. We're slaves to sin. We're under his sway, leading all mankind into wickedness and evil, causing death 
causing cancer, causing all the tragedies you've heard about this week, blinding people from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, the world is under the tyranny and the rule of the evil one. And now as a result of that, all the kingdoms of this world are ungodly, all the kingdoms of this world are oppressive, all the kingdoms of this world are following the prince of the power of the air, Paul tells us. There's a reason why in Daniel, the book of Daniel, the kingdoms of the earth are pictured as beasts. That's what's wrong in the Middle East. That's what's wrong in the Ukraine. That's what's wrong in Russia. That's what's wrong in the United States of America. The kingdom, the domain of darkness. But the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of another kingdom. Another kingdom that's coming. A future kingdom. Look, look at this. Daniel chapter 7. Listen to how it's described. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus' favorite title for himself, by the way. One like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the promised kingdom that's coming. And then as the New Testament opens, in fact, what we see clearly in the Gospel of Matthew is that when Jesus Christ shows up, the kingdom of God shows up. Because the kingdom is wherever the king is. Don't take my word for it. Look here, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. As Jesus begins his public ministry, the very first words out of his mouth as he's preaching. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Now what does that mean? It's here. It's now. I'm here, the kingdom's here. It's not something promised anymore. It's here. And yet, this kingdom is still something that is awaiting its final consummation in full. Right? You go, in fact, to the very end of the New Testament. Last verse of the Bible. Revelation 22.20. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. I am coming to establish my kingdom forever. Surely I'm coming soon. And John says, what does he say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. John's praying, Lord, your kingdom come. So then what is the kingdom? The kingdom is something that's present now here on the earth. Jesus describes it as a mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13. It's this little bitty seed, smallest of all the seeds. And yet, as it grows, it grows into this massive tree where all the birds of the, the birds, the Gentiles, come to make their nests in its branches. It's here now. It's growing. It's expanding. 
It has been, beloved, for the last 2,000 years. Not from America. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. As the gospel's changing people's lives. And yet the, the kingdom is still something future as well. It's yet to come. It was inaugurated at his first coming. It's going to be consummated at his second coming. So where do we see the kingdom of God now? Here it is. It's in the hearts and lives of people who are coming under the saving rule of King Jesus. That's where you see the kingdom coming now. Men and women, boys and girls, coming under the gospel of Christ, the lordship of Jesus, as the gospel is proclaimed. And where do you see the kingdom future? Well, it's when Jesus returns and every eye will see him and all will bow before his sovereign kingship. So then what does it mean, pastor, for me daily to pray your kingdom come? I think it's to pray for both. This petition, this is a petition that the saving reign of God would come now and advance through the world. The gospel is preached to all nations until the consummation then of the kingdom at the end of the age. The king of kings, lord of lords, extending his rule and reign, upending the tyranny of Satan as the reign of God is breaking into the world. And so we're to pray that an ever-increasing number of people would experience the saving rule of Jesus by turning from their sin and trusting in Him. That's what it means to pray your kingdom come. So it has both, you can see here, a personal as well as a global focus, just like in the first petition. Personally, it means praying, Father, in my own heart, rule my life. Every aspect of my life, bring it under the, the lordship of you. Take over. Be my king. Your kingdom come in your, my life. Your kingdom come in my heart. Ask him daily. But second, I think more broadly, it means praying that the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. That it, the saving rule of Jesus would come in a greater way in my home. Lord, save my children. Your kingdom come in my home, among my lost family members, among my co-workers, among my neighbors and students, and, and use me, Lord. Use me to advance your kingdom. Use my church. May, may I be alert to opportunities and conversations and answer to this prayer where, where the gospel can advance in somebody else's heart and life today. Let your kingdom come. Let it come in my church. Let it come in Mount Vernon. Let it come in Southern Illinois. And let it expand to every tribe and tongue and nation until Jesus comes again. Bring your kingdom. Is that what dominates your prayers? Albert Moeller, his little, he's got a little helpful book called The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down. It's on the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that turns the world upside down. Here's what he says. When you ask and say your kingdom come, here's what you're praying. You're praying that history would be brought to a close. You ever pray that? Maranatha, come. You're praying that all nations would rejoice in the glory of God. And you're praying that Christ would be honored in every human 
heart. Hallowed be your name. That the kingdom would come in my heart, my life, this world. Final petition. Petition number three. We've seen God's glory. We've seen God's reign. Now God's will. Your will be done. So he wants us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So do you see how all three of these petitions are tied together? It's all about God. It's all about His glory. It's not about me. I am not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. He is the most self-centered being in the universe, and it's the most glorious thing He can be because it's all about Him. It's not about me. In fact, that last phrase there, look at verse 10. On earth as it is in heaven. That last phrase, it's really about all three of these requests. John Stott writes this in his commentary. He says, the expression, on earth as it is in heaven, seems to apply equally to the hallowing of God's name, the spreading of His kingdom, and the doing of His will. That's what I want. That's what I desire. This is what I long for. That the disciple of Jesus wants to see the realities of heaven realized on the earth. That what's true in heaven would be true on the earth. What's going on in heaven? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels are doing everything He's commanding. Make it true on the earth. So we want His will to be done. Now what does that mean? The will of God, what is that? Your will be done. Well, I think we can think about the will of God in just two ways. Two ways. First, there's what we call God's revealed will or His moral will. So this would be His commandments, His precepts, His laws that He's revealed to us in the Scripture, right? Sometimes it's called His prescriptive will, His revealed will, moral will. That's the first kind. And then the second is what we call His will of decree, right? The counsel of His will, what will happen in history, what will come to pass that has already been planned before the foundation of the world and it cannot be changed. His will of decree. So what are we praying for here? Both. (laughs) The disciple of Jesus should pray for God's will to be done in both senses of the word. We pray that we ourselves, our church, this world, would know and do the moral will of God. Lord, bring my life in conformity to your will. That's what we're praying. But we pray asking for God 
to fulfill all of his sovereign purposes in the world. Which, if you remember, we saw last week, prayers, our prayers are the sovereignly ordained means by which he accomplishes that will of decree. So we're praying for God's moral will to be conformed in us, and we're praying for God's sovereign will to be done, accomplished in the world. Your will be done. So we know what he's commanded. We know his moral will. We know what he wants for us. And we know his will will come to pass. We know his decrees. We know how the story ends. We know, how, we know the kingdom's coming, amen? We know that one day his name is going to be hallowed by every tongue and nation of the earth. But everything else in between that is a mystery. And beloved, that's where we live. This mystery. I know what you said in your word. I know what's going to happen. What happens in between? It's a mystery. We don't know. There's this really great verse you should memorize after you're done memorizing the Sermon on the Mount. Really great verse you should memorize at the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So notice, there's secret things only God knows. His plans, His purposes that we don't get to see. And we may never see this side of heaven. Because He hasn't revealed them to us. And there are revealed things, things we get to know that He has revealed in His Word. But a lot of what happens in life is a mystery. And we're left wondering, what's the will of God? <laughs> and he doesn't generally tell us how the details of our life are working out for our good and for his purposes. They are, we know it, but we don't often see it. They're secret, known only to the mind of God. It's a mystery. Which should keep us from charging through life, arrogantly making plans. Because we don't know. You don't know if that prayer for healing for cancer is going to result in a miracle of God. Or if you're going to die six months later. You don't know. Or, I was thinking this week about the group from 10 Mile, talking with my kids about it. Here, here's, a, here's a church group on their way to do a mission trip. God's will. And tragedy hits. And we're asking, Lord, why? 
What are you doing? We don't know. And you may never know. Beloved, those things are God's. And that should be a constant reminder to us that this prayer, Father, your will be done, should always be on our lips. Because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't even know what the next hour is going to bring. James says it like this. I'll close with this. James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. We're going to do all these things. we got all these plans. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? If you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Or do this or that. And that should be a constant reminder to you of his sovereignty. And a constant call for you to trust him. Your will be done. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And one author says, now that the prayer is nearly half over. Our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be humbled by the glory of your name. Would you fix our hearts on you? May our souls be captivated by you, that you would be revered in our hearts and our thoughts and our minds and our actions. Do that in us, Lord. Do that in our families. Do that in this church. Do that in this world. Let your sovereign will, that will of decree, be a sweet comfort to our souls, that you're the one ruling the universe. In the highs of life, in the lows of life, you are in control and nothing stands against the counsel of your will that you have sovereignly decreed. Lord, help us to trust that. Your will be done. And let it lead us to a confident submission to your will. Have your way in us. Lord, teach us to pray like this. Teach us to make this our daily priority in how we pray that we would be caught up in great things, glorious things, global, eternal things that you're doing. Oh, how often, Lord, we are so focused on the the small picture and we don't see the big picture of what you're doing. Help us to zoom out the lens and to see the greatness of our God, the holiness of our God, the kingdom of God that's coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.